This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge of Wharton. I'm Angie Bassuni. Omnichannel marketing seems like a simple enough concept. Consumers like to shop online, offline, and across different channels, so firms need to meet them wherever they are. But coming up with an omnichannel marketing strategy is a lot more complicated than just collecting cookies and tracking purchases. A new study that appears in a special issue of the Journal of Marketing, in collaboration with the Marketing Science Institute, explains why omnichannel is not a panacea. There are three big challenges to making it work. Those challenges are outlined in the study, along with some solutions that include using machine learning and blockchain technology to harness the full benefits of omnichannel marketing. Wharton professor Raghuram Iyengar is one of the co-authors of the study, and he's here today to walk us through these three challenges and solutions. Raghu, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you, Angie, for having me. Omnichannel marketing really is a hot topic these days. Not only are the firms trying to execute it better, but researchers like yourself are trying to understand it better, even while the rapid evolution of technology makes that a moving target. What does this study add to the literature? If you think about it, Angie, as you mentioned, Omnichannel certainly is very hot. Uh, You know, when companies are thinking about Omnichannel, uh, they sometimes, you know, want to think about distinguishing from multi-channel. And the, the big distinguishing aspect of it is multi-channel is different ways in which you're reaching the customer. Omni-channel is that as well, but it should be in synergy. And so if you are, for example, a, a customer of REI, let's say, you might have, let's say, a mobile application. You might have emails coming in. And if they are pursuing an omni-channel strategy, they're hoping that Angie, the customer, is seeing different pieces of information in conjunction with each other and as a, in some sense, which are complementary to each other. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, carrying that out is not that easy uh, because you need to have a good sense of, um, you know, what the data is like, all the different touch points that Angie has had with REI, for instance, or any other company, and then be able to execute it in the back end. And so uh, putting it all together is not as simple as it seems. Uh, maybe for me, maybe not REI. I'm not a big outdoor person. Maybe Nordstrom. Let's try that. <laughs> so your paper is organized into really three distinct challenges and remedies, easy to follow. Let's go through each one of them. The first yeah. challenge is about data. What is the issue with data? So as I was mentioning, Angie, I'll take the Nordstrom example. Uh, <laughs> so for example, let's say, uh, you know, Angie goes to Nordstrom, uh, you know, on their website and shops something, uh, you know, and then you decide to go to the store and shop for something else. The hope would be that uh, Nordstrom, again, would have all your data in one place. Um, You know, Angie going online, Angie going to the store, Angie perhaps using a a mobile application. But the reality might be, and I don't know much about Nordstrom in particular, but uh, reality might be for many companies, much of our customers' data might be very siloed. Uh, Why? Because different types of departments are in charge of different parts of the journey. And so there might be an online department, there might be an in-store department, and so on and so forth. And so these people are looking at different snippets of data. So sometimes in large companies, the data becomes siloed. Um, and this could be for various reasons. Some of it could be political, uh, because some uh, people want to kind of take charge of that data, which is perhaps more important for revenues. Uh, and some of it just could be that analysts just don't know where the data is. That's very true. I remember several years ago going into a department store, inquiring about an item that was on sale online, but not yeah. in the store. And I remember saying to the clerk, well, how, how are there two different sale points here? And he said, because the online sale has nothing to do with what's going on in the store. That's a good example of data being yeah. fragmented. So what about the solutions? How do we how do we check some of that? So some of it, of course, is kind of forcing uh, within a company kind of silos to be taken away. Again, this is easier said than done. 
Uh, but that has to be sort of top down, uh, which is companies have to realize what is the value being added by some of those silos being taken away. Uh, another set of solutions does come from slightly more machine learning type examples. Uh, of course, it may not be for every retailer, but you can imagine in certain regulated industries, uh, even if they do want silos to go away, uh, it may not be easy. Uh, in the financial industries, for example, one part of the company might be uh, interested in some certain applications, another part might be in another, but because of regulation, they can't talk to each other. So something called federated learning, uh, which is a type of machine learning where you can imagine data sitting in different places and a central kind of, you know, you can call it an algorithm, quote unquote, processes data from different places in such a way that each of that data by themselves are anonymized. And so in that sense, you can, quote unquote, mix in the secret sauce, so to speak, mm -hmm. without even the ingredients coming together. Uh, you know, that might be a good analogy. Uh, so that's one way to do it, where uh, the idea of silos in some sense uh, is not because uh, of the fact that company doesn't want it to go away, but because of regulation. So there are these kinds of solutions which increasingly many companies are thinking about. We're going to get back to having more of a conversation about that uh, machine learning aspect of yeah. it. But let's go to the second challenge in the paper. That's about yeah. marketing attribution. Yeah. What is marketing attribution? Why is it a problem? Let me give you an example. I think that might be the best way our, our listeners can perhaps understand what attribution is. So again, I'll take Angie, our customer. Let's go with Nordstrom as the uh, representative company. Now that might you told well. me like Nordstrom. <laughs> uh, so imagine uh, you get an email. Um, you start looking at, oh, well, that's interesting. Nordstrom is sending me an email. Let me look at what the offer is and so on. Uh, I'm assuming Nordstrom also sends some catalogs perhaps. Uh, so they might have that. Um, you might go into the store. And at some point, let's say Nordstrom sees and imagine their data is in fact not siloed altogether. Uh, they see Angie has bought something. Now, marketing attribution is which part of this touch point? Was it the email? Uh, was it the catalog? Uh, was it something that the salesperson did within the store? Uh, which part of it was responsible? Perhaps all of them were responsible for that conversion that happened. But then also thinking about how much of that conversion, quote unquote, can be credited what part of it and how much of it to be credited to the, each of the different touch points. So that's what attribution is all about. You know, how do you attribute, so to speak, the conversion at the end or lack thereof uh, to what happened along the way? Right. Because for, for marketers, it has to be about your, your total spend and what you're getting for that dollar, for that value. So what are some of the solutions that we can think of when we're talking about sort of shoring up our marketing attribution? So there are many, again, you need to think about uh, thinking carefully about, again, the solution. Some of it uh, might be more uh, kind of blockchain related, as I mentioned earlier, but some of it, you know, slightly simple. Let's start with the simpler ones. In fact, what I've seen some companies do is, and, and, and quite actively, is this idea of testing and learning. Uh, the idea being that sometimes, you know, like going back to that email example I was sending, uh, sometimes a company might say, well, let's try to see what happens if we don't send that email in a systematic manner. So like test versus control, people mm -hmm. are randomly assigned, some people get an email, some people don't, and then they, tra they track their journey throughout that entire customer journey to see what happened to people who got the email versus not. So what are they trying to do? Holding everything else constant, they're trying to change one part of that journey to then be able to see uh, what is the impact of changing that one part on the remaining part of the journey. But it can, of course, be a little bit more uh, kind of demanding in terms of coming up with an experiment to change multiple parts of that journey in a systematic manner. So uh, that's basically this idea of testing and learning. So all these uh, or many companies, uh, for example, recently I was talking to Hershey, uh, Hershey CMO, and she mentioned that especially during the last year, uh, they've been experimenting with different types of media mix uh, to kind of see what works, what doesn't. It can be a little bit of trial and error. 
Oh, but it's all about trial and error. And in some okay. sense, uh, you know, if you knew the answer, of course, you'll go ahead and go with the the answer, so to speak. But many times, you know, A, the context is changing. Uh, B, for example, especially in the last year or so, uh, you know, consumer behavior has changed. Right. So what was working the year before that perhaps is not going to work today. What might be That's working right. today may not work next year or the year after Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right. Um, and I believe, I think uh, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it was Dwight Eisenhower who made that uh, very famous quote that uh, wars are won on planning. The plans don't mean anything, but planning is everything. Um, not, not sure if you're correct, but I'll take your word for it. Sounds good. Yeah. So I, you might want readers. Might, <laughs> might They'll let us know. They'll let us know if we got it wrong. <laughs> All right. So the third and final challenge in the paper that you talk about is a really hot topic, a really big one today. And yeah. it's about data privacy. We yeah. we hear about these issues every single day, especially with GDPR and other measures that are, are always being proposed in our own legislature. What do you and your co-authors say about this issue of data privacy? Yes, and this is where I think, you know, when you think about all the wonderful things that an omnichannel marketing can get you, which is, you know, the synergistic view of the customer, the 360-degree view where you can see the customer, you know, all the different touch points. Of course, the issue with privacy is that customers may not want to give you that data, right? Uh, especially with GDPR coming in, the California Privacy Act coming in in the U.S., for example. Uh, you know, a lot more control is being given back to the consumer. Um, and recently, for example, the latest update from Apple. Uh, is, uh, you know, basically demanding that consumers, quote unquote, give their approval for certain apps to track their information. And so all of this is giving a lot more information and control back to the customers. And now it's up to the customers whether they would like to see some uh, benefit from the data that they're sharing. And what we've seen is privacy is not one dimensional. It's not a yes versus no answer. It's something that customers have to think about whether, you know, how, how comfortable are they sharing, for example, and I'll give an example. I like drinking coffee. And, you know, if I go to a website and say, well, you know, based on your preferences, here's a coffee blend that I would recommend. Great. Thank you. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't want my healthcare records being shared. Um, and so I think it's a question of what context are you in? Uh, it's a question of what exact benefit are we getting uh, as a customer such that you might be more inclined to share that data. That's very true. And I know your paper also says that customers feel more comfortable when there is a bit of data transparency, when you're telling them what you're sharing, um, when you, as you said, uh, giving them the option to opt in or opt out of that kind of sharing of data. Before we leave the topic of data privacy, um, you talk about in the paper about using blockchain technology to help address that issue. Can you go into that a little bit and explain how blockchain technology can help? Sure, certainly. And so the idea of the blockchain in some sense, uh, you know, for those of us who might be uncomfortable with it uh, or might be unfamiliar with it, is this idea that think of it as a distributed ledger, so to speak, uh, which is, you know, like just the ledgers that we have where we, you know, uh, you know, you might have your own tracking of the money that you're spending on different things and you have a personal tracking. Think of it as a giant audit book where things are being tracked. Um, and it's publicly available. But, you know, once the record is in there till you have, in some sense, a way of changing it, it's not it's immutable. It doesn't change as fast. And so uh, the idea there would be that uh, you can imagine customers, quote unquote, giving up certain information within the blockchain um, and firms being able to access that information to appropriately then targeting customers. But of course, uh, you know, this is a great way of keeping track of what information firms are using. And then consumers or customers can then demand appropriate compensation for using that information. So this is a great way. Think of it as um, uh, as a ledger that's keeping track of what information was used and how much compensation, so to speak, should be given back to the customer for that information being used. That holds a lot of promise for the future. Absolutely holds a lot of promise. 
So I know this is an emerging area of research for marketers. What do you personally hope to study next in this area? So to me, I think uh, this idea of privacy and all of that, you know, using machine learning and new technologies, I think it's very interesting to understand, uh, for instance, what are ways in which, um, and this is some work that I'm doing with my colleague, Eric Bradlow, um, and a grad student, Ming Young Kim, uh, who is, you know, obviously the, the main driver of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are looking at, for example, the following question, and, and this is something of very much interest to Apple and other companies as well. Uh, which is, you know, do we always need the most granular data to make good decisions? Which is, imagine we have individual level data from customers. Let's imagine then we have, um, let's say, slightly more aggregated data, which might be groups of people and so on. Uh, Do we actually need the most granular data uh, for making appropriately good targeting decisions? And what we are trying to see is at what point, for example, some of the more granular data may have a lot of noise as well. Um, And whereas slightly more aggregated data kind of, you know, smoothens out that noise. And so we're trying to see, you know, what kind of models can be built on slightly more aggregated data that might actually do quite well. And so what does it have for privacy? Well, you know, can you imagine individuals may not want to share their particular data per se, but they might be comfortable if they're part of a data set, quote unquote, where they're aggregated with other customers. And so I think that's an interesting area of research where uh, it kind of intersects between privacy and machine learning and other kinds of models. And so that's something I'm pretty excited about to see how we can use uh, data of different kinds to still make good decisions and at the same time respect people's privacy. That is very interesting because it does feel like we are constantly in pursuit of the most fine grained data available. And your research is saying, well, maybe perhaps that data isn't as valuable as as it could be. Indeed. Thank you very much for all this great information, Rangu. It was nice to, to speak with you today. Pleasure, Ranji. Thank you so much for having me. If you would like to read the full study, it's titled Informational Challenges in Omnichannel Marketing, Remedies and Future Research. It's available online in the Journal of Marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more just like it on our website, where you can also find all our articles on the latest research in business. I'm Angie Bassiani. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.